Hello, my name is Christian Butterfield, and this is the International War Report. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine and last month's clashes in Kyrgyzstan. But before we get started, I very quickly want to give you a brief insight as to what this is, why I'm making this podcast, and what I hope together we can uh, achieve, me as your host and you as my listener. War is one of the most high-stakes issues on the planet, and it affects, at any given time, uh, millions of people. Your definition of war might be different than mine, but generally speaking, what I'm talking about and what this podcast will address is armed human conflict. So it doesn't necessarily have to be war between nation states. But this phenomena, which is a global phenomena, it has the power to affect every aspect of social life. Everything from energy supplies, food supplies, structure of government, the conduct of private industry, down to the individual level. The laws that you adhere to, whether or not you have a home, the lives of your children, the life of your spouse, your life, whether it continues or doesn't. That is so often what is at stake when humans come to arms against one another. I want to try to understand it broadly a little bit better, but also stay up to date, stay in tune with the details of how those conflicts are progressing and how they came about. I think understanding how it is that people across the globe reach that point could help us get to a time when those things no longer occur. And maybe that's too optimistic, but I'm not sure yet. Maybe that will come to light as, uh, as this program moves forward. But there's another reason why I think this podcast is important. From where I'm sitting, it really looks like misinformation is taking root around the world. And whether you're dealing with an internet troll who wants to be contrarian for the sake of being controversial, or you're dealing with a coordinated state program designed to malign public opinion on certain issues, it's hard to tell. We have the whole well of current information and past human knowledge at our fingertips 
all the time. Um, that said, I think there needs to be at least one more, if you'll allow me. Actor in the theater dedicated to what's true, dedicated to fact, committed to parsing through what's real and what isn't, and giving a best effort to real understanding of these high-stakes conflicts. And at the very least, it'll clear the windshield for us, and we'll be able to see things a little bit more clearly. And I think at my most ambitious for that type of activity, I'm hoping to promote that behavior as best I can and, and spread that type of commitment. If more people were committed to that, um, I think if you could somehow index hysteria and confusion, we, we, you know, we would put a, a nice dent uh, in the numbers on that one. So um, it's just another consideration at the top of my mind in going into this show. So let me explain a little bit how this works. Every week I produce a report. It's published on internationalwarreport.com and it covers uh, the biggest conflicts in the world that stay in the news cycle. So for example, Ukraine, of course, is going to be in the report um, for the foreseeable future. But I make it a point to cover lesser-known conflicts and, and conflicts that don't appear as prominently in the media. I think they're just as important to understand, to stay on top of, so um, I cover those as well. Now, for this first episode, I am just going to cover Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan on account of it being episode one and our little uh, introductory uh, section here. Uh, and in episode two, I will cover the rest of the conflicts in the current report, and that'll be uh, the Tigray War, the conflict in Myanmar, and the situation in DR Congo. So let's go ahead and get started for this week, uh, and we start in Ukraine. I'm recording this podcast on the 10th of October. The report was published on the 7th. So bear with me here. We're going we're gonna to cover a sort of wider window. Um, and in case you guys haven't been keeping up with it, uh, you might have heard recently about, uh, you know, Ukraine seems to be, the conflict, the war seems to be back in the news. Uh, that's because Ukraine, uh, in, the, in the middle of, September, 
launched a counteroffensive. It was a new push. They'd been talking for a long time about pushing back against Russian forces in the south of Ukraine um, towards Kyrgyzstan um, and towards Crimea, talking about this big counteroffensive that they're going to do. And they talked about it for months. And, and Zelensky was, President Zelensky, president of Ukraine, was, um, in his nightly address, was gassing up. We're coming for the south. We're coming for Kherson. We're going to liberate. Kherson is a city in the southwest, or the south of Ukraine. We're going to liberate Kherson. The push is coming. The push is coming. Finally, when the push did come, middle of September, it happened in the eastern part of the country, a totally opposite end of the front. Um, and they pushed out of Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in Ukraine, which had taken an ass-whipping at the beginning of the war. But Ukrainian forces maintained control. And they eventually were able to build up enough um, in Kharkiv to launch this huge sweeping counteroffensive in the east uh, of Ukraine. And Ukraine has really been achieving victory after victory against the Russians in the region. My, my last report, so not the current report, the last one, I talked about the retaking of Izium, which was a, a town uh, that held a Russian base. The Russians uh, retreated completely from Izium after uh, they lost their supply line. It was a rail town, Kupiansk. It was north of Izium. And, and it was, you know, all pretty quick. The Ukrainians just um, becoming more and more aggressive with their maneuvers, with their infantry, with armored elements. Uh, their anti-air and anti-armor engagements are happening daily. Uh, their use of uh, European and American artillery has been huge. Um, so these truck-mounted you know, rocket units that they use to, um, it's not like it used to be. You're, you're not firing randomly. You're using, they use drones to, to, to identify exactly where the Russians are and they just batter them with artillery. Uh, and then, you know, act, follow that up really aggressively. And the fighting has been, has been, uh, intense and they're making, a ton of progress after they liberated Izium. They liberated the town of Lyman just this past week. Uh, and, and that's just directly southeast of Izium. So they're just pushing straight through. They encircled Lyman. There was one way out for the Russians. They took it at the last second. Um, so the Ukrainian forces triggered again a full retreat of Russian forces from Lyman. Um, it makes me think that that at some point in the East, the fighting will get a little bit more um, direct. And we see some of that in places like Bakhmut. Uh, the Russians have maintained an advance on Bakhmut, a town just south of Lyman. They've been trying to take that town uh, for a long time. And, and just for the past few weeks, kind of coinciding with the Ukrainian counteroffensive, they launched this new um, push to take Bakhmut. 
And the fighting there has been brutal. Heavy fighting. Zelensky has talked about it. Heavy fighting there. Wave after wave of Russian artillery, Russian armor, Russian infantry pushing for Bakhmut and Ukrainian forces there uh, just dug in, holding it down. Um, I think there are even some Ukrainian civilians that are that have remained in the town. So, I mean, credit to them, I'm sure. At that point, I, th- I think everybody is involved. You have the babushkas helping out when they can, you know, I mean, good God. So a lot of progress being made in the east by Ukrainian forces. They keep on just pushing that line further and further back. But, you know, I, I think at some point we're going to see that line the Russians stop moving. So they were full retreat out of Izium, full retreat out of Lyman. And I'm just wondering, at what point do they kind of fall back, gather, get their shit together, and launch a counteroffensive against Ukraine, or just hold the line, kind of like what the Ukrainians are doing in Bakhmut, right, where the Russians say, fuck it, I'm not retreating, I'm sitting right here. Um, that is going to be a tough, tough day. For everybody involved, um, uh, I talked about that that advertised push in the south towards Kherson, right? Kind of before the before they launched this counteroffensive in the east, they gassed up this counteroffensive in the south. Uh, they did the fake out. They did the counteroffensive in the east. Well, the push in the south is happening. Uh, that is, it, it it's it wasn't as um, intense right from the rip in, in mid-September, but it is slowly building up steam. The trouble is that push in the south is pushing directly into a big city, Kherson, which is a, you know, a kind of a hub city in the south there. And the Russians are held down in that city, I mean, very well. There there are a lot of forces, a lot of equipment built up in Kherson. They've occupied it um, since the beginning phases of the war. Uh, and it's just a slog for the Ukrainians that are pushing in the northwest uh, uh, of Kherson. So from... Um, uh, Mikolaev <laughs> gave that a shot. They're they're pushing southeast out of that city towards Kherson, and they're just they're very quickly um, reaching those outer villages, the suburbs of Kherson, and the fighting gets more and more intense, much more difficult as as they push into those urban areas. There was like a, a rural, more rural stretch of R- Russian-occupied land northeast of Kyrgyzstan, and the Ukrainians have pushed that line back. That's been in the past week, and I think that's continuing um, in the past few days, and even, you know, as, as I record this, that uh, push northeast of Kyrgyzstan, the Ukrainians are making a lot of progress, so... So they're kind of at the gates on the northwest side of the city, and they are making a lot of progress to soon be on the northeast side of Kherson as well. Um, that's going to be a rough day for Russian forces in Kherson. We're talking about the potential fall of important supply lines. Um, 
and just an increased pressure on on two sides. Uh, yeah, going to be a tough uh, time for them. I have heard and seen a few things about uh, partisan cells operating in Kherson. They are working um, with Ukrainian intelligence services. Uh, just this past week, they had a the deputy head of security for Kherson. He was a part of the government that the Russians put in place after they occupied Kherson. They, they installed their own occupation government. He was in his residence at night. I guess My guess is that he was sleeping. And the partisans worked together with the intelligence forces to track him, kind of find out where he was living, where he was staying, when he was going to be there. And uh, Ukrainian forces launched a... Uh, a high Mars rocket, which is a uh, high mobility artillery rocket system, and they struck his his house where he was uh, sleeping, uh, and they killed him. It's not pretty, but I think you have to accept the risk if you're going to participate in the governance of an invading force, especially in a city that plays host to a partisan cell so active that Russian military forces in Kyrgyzstan frequently run operations against its existence. Uh, you choose to just sleep in a house in an occupied city, that seems to me to be, uh, especially considering this guy was a former Russian spy, I mean, you've got to know that that's on the table, right? How do, you, how do you even go to sleep in, like, a normal house? You go to, like, a house in Kyrgyzstan and sleep? I'd be sleeping in the sewers. Anyway, I think those partisans are going to be... Um, busier and busier as Ukrainian forces get closer and closer to the city. Um, keeping, keeping those guys in my thoughts, those men and women in my thoughts, because um, that is a hell of a thing to do. Shout out to the partisans in, uh, in Kyrgyzstan. We're going to explore one more conflict in today's episode. The rest of the conflicts in the current issue of the International War Report will be explored in episode two. Uh, but before I move on off of Ukraine, I want to just touch on a position I've seen popping up on social media from guys like Roger Waters and Elon Musk. Um, their thought is that the war in Ukraine should end today. And the way that we should secure that peace is through compromise. That Ukraine and Russia should come to some middle ground agreement. That, and really what that looks like is Ukraine conceding some territory to Russia. And Russia withdraws their troops and forces uh, from the rest of Ukraine. 
there are a few problems with that position. And, and look, on its face, it might seem like a good idea. If you just leave it at face value and you say, the war in Ukraine should end today through compromise, you might think, yeah, great, what's, what's the problem? No issue there. The problem is that Russia invaded Ukraine. They violated international law. They are seeking to conquer territory from what is essentially a sister nation by means of violence. And the idea to secure peace is to reward that action, to reward invasion with tangible gain. To send the message that, yes, this is an effective means to accomplishing your agenda. Invasion and the slaughtering of civilians. It's nationalist belligerence. And to reward that in any capacity, even a little bit, it's been proven time and time again to be a terrible idea. When you're dealing with a violent totalitarian dictator like Vladimir Putin, peace today over every other consideration is the escalation of war and human suffering tomorrow. The way that the war in Ukraine will end, or should end, is that Russia should withdraw their troops from Ukraine. And from a Ukrainian perspective, the war should continue until Russia withdraws from Ukraine. That's it. That's it. You cannot reward violent, belligerent state activity, especially in the name of territorial gain. It's it's a non-starter. It's absolutely not on the table. We've learned time and time again that appeasement doesn't secure peace. Appeasement allows for the establishment of secondary and tertiary supply lines. Appeasement allows for the amassing of troops and materiel on a new front. Appeasement broadcasts fear and apprehension to belligerent actors who are betting on your fear. They are betting on your weakness so they can take what they want in the name of nationalist power. And in Russia's case, in the name of the rebirth of the Soviet Empire. So if you're Ukraine, you have two choices. Concede or fight. And if you concede, you're doing so right after your nation went through a revolution. Ukraine had a revolution in 2014 to redefine the future of their nation. They wanted to break away from the shadow of Russia and the Soviet Union. They wanted to align themselves as a more independent nation closer to the rest of the globe.
closer to the international community. Ukrainians died in that revolution. They fought for the future of their nation. And now you're asking them to throw it away. For those Ukrainians in the revolution who died to die in vain so that the fighting can end today. I mean, it's actually a nonsense argument. Throw away the future of your nation that you fought and died for, that Ukrainians fought and died for, so you can end the fight for the future of your nation today. It, it, it's a nonsense argument. So this uh, whole little half-baked thought coming from Elon about Ukraine remaining neutral and he's staying up all night to try, find a way to de-escalate the war. I mean, what the what what is that? What is that? It it's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. And Roger Waters, dude, you would think that you of all people would get it. That you would understand that this is not a willing contest between two nations for some kind of power play. This is the will of one nation trying to dominate another and the refusal of the other nation to roll over and be dominated. And it's not as if Ukraine was doing anything to deserve foreign intervention. There weren't these gross human rights violations. They weren't harboring exporters of terrorism. They were just trying to define their own path forward, one that was opposed to Russia's agenda, and so Russia intervened. Um, and hey, maybe the people who have stood behind this position just haven't thought it all the way through. But in the face of the whole situation, I don't I th I really don't think there's any room for disagreement. Ukraine should continue fighting this war until Russia leaves Ukraine. That's it. That's the beginning and the end of it. And if you disagree in the face of, of that whole train of thought, you are playing into the hands of Russia and maybe even sympathetic to their cause. Which means you're sympathetic to state belligerence, sympathetic to conquer by violence, and sympathetic to the slaughtering of civilians. But it's not too late to change your mind. Let's, uh, let's move on. We're going to move on to uh, our second conflict of this episode. It brings us to the nation of Kyrgyzstan.
So if I had to bet, I would say there are at least a few of you out there who are somewhat unfamiliar with the nation of Kyrgyzstan. Fair enough. Uh, the region that all of the stands, if you will, are a part of Central Asia, kind of difficult to, to stay on top of it all. But uh, I'll try and quickly break it down for you. Those nations in Central Asia, uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, are all former Soviet nations and found their independence after the fall of the Soviet Union. Since then, all of these nations have had their fair share of disagreements, but lately, none more so than Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. They come to blows pretty frequently, and unfortunately, it seems to be getting worse as the years go on, especially the past two years. There's been a sharp escalation in the scale of the violence between the two countries. And although they're technically allies, um, I have to say it, it, it you know, the, the ongoing violence doesn't, doesn't bode well for, for the prospect of long-term peace between those two countries, especially when you look at this most recent clash. And I want to talk about it because it happened in mid-September, and before we get too far away from it, I want to just give you some uh, insight into it so that if these kind of things pop up again, you can kind of have a grip on, on uh, what the hell is going on. Um, in order to understand this, I kind of have to talk about Kyrgyzstan on the map. And like I said, many of you, uh, if you're from the West, uh, probably uh, um, can't point to Kyrgyzstan on a map. So let me try and, and admittedly, I couldn't either before I, uh, before I started this whole thing. So let me try and describe it to you. To the east of Kyrgyzstan is China. It shares a border directly with China to the east. Uh, to the north, generally speaking, is Russia, but Kazakhstan shares the direct northern border. Southwest of Kyrgyzstan is Afghanistan and Iran and Pakistan, but the direct border southwest of Kyrgyzstan is uh, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Uh, Kyrgyzstan is shaped like a jaw of, uh, of an animal. Let's call it... Uh, what do you want to call it? A, a cat. I, I, <laughs> that's what it looks like to me. Like a cat's jaw. And it's facing west. So you have the top jaw and the bottom jaw being Kyrgyz land. And inside the mouth, inside the jaw, in between the two jaws, uh, are it's both Tajikistan and Uzbekistan territory. What we're focused on is a region called the Batkin region, and that is the westernmost part of the bottom jaw, and it makes up most of that bottom jaw of Kyrgyzstan. And its northern border is a border between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Since these nations 
gained independence in the early 90s. The Batkin region has been a point of contention between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Uh, so much so that there are even pockets of Tajik territory completely encircled by Kyrgyz territory. So these exclave pockets of the nation of Tajikistan within the borders of Kyrgyzstan. Um, and I think that just speaks to how contentious this region is. Uh, on top of that, there is a stretch of the border in the Batkin region that is non-delineated, so it is an actively disputed border, and the countries have kind of agreed to disagree and have had an agreement uh, to at least not fight over it openly and to not develop on it. But that's the whole source of this recurring conflict. That's at the heart of this recurring conflict is every time a nation, one of the nations, either Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, does encroach on that land, or any time one of the nations perceives an encroachment, whether it's civilian, military, whatever, uh, there is violence. So in the past 30 years, the violence has been... Not to the scale that it is these days. I mean, at some point you have like melee combat happening in these border regions between civilians. And the militaries of the two nations oversee these like big brawls and they throw stones at each other. And sometimes the militaries um, get involved in the, in the fighting. Uh, but it has never been really large scale military operations until recently. The dispute is really about resources, uh, control of natural resources in a region where water and pasture land are scarce. And so both nations want control over the majority of, of resources in the area, and that is, um, you know, the, cr the crux of this whole thing. So Last year, the first sign of escalating violence uh, started with a dispute near Varuk, one of the Tajik exclaves in the Batkin region. Uh, there were contentious civilian movements. Uh, there was the accusation that Kyrgyzstan was developing a military presence and surveillance presence in the area, especially as it concerned a water supply facility. This led to civilians fighting, which led to the militaries fighting, and it began as one of these melees and then escalated into full-blown armed conflict. I've seen videos of some of the gunfights, which were horrible, um, and there were reports of the use of artillery and rockets as well. Um, and by the end of the fighting, 50 people were dead, more than 100 wounded, both military and civilian, uh, and then a peace deal was signed. Now, fast forward to this year, 2022. Just two, three weeks ago, 
in mid-September, there was another escalation in violence. And this time, it involved a border station that um, Tajikistan set up. It was a new border station in a non-delineated part of the border. So one of these disputed regions, Tajikistan established a border station. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, and this is confirmed by both ministries of defense, Kyrgyzstan opened fire on that border station, killing one Tajik border guard. And in response, Tajikistan launched a micro-invasion of Kyrgyzstan. They, uh, they occupied a border village, they launched a barrage of artillery, um, and mobilized troops, armor, reportedly some aircraft even, into uh, the Kyrgyz border, into Kyrgyz territory. Over the next few days, fighting continued all across the border of the Batkin region, border stations uh, engaging with one another. Kyrgyzstan launched its own artillery barrages. Tajik authorities said uh, at least seven border villages were targeted um, by Kyrgyz artillery. Uh, the city of Batkin, which is the regional capital of the Batkin region, is inside Kyrgyz territory. Uh, that was shelled by Tajik forces. The airport was damaged. A number of civilians were killed. The fighting eventually reached a point where armored elements were rolling into Kyrgyzstan, and Kyrgyzstan was blowing them up with uh, TB2 drones. And I've seen photos to support that claim. And I think that speaks to the level of violence and military action that these conflicts have reached just in the last two years. The fighting lasted six days in total. On September 20th, both nations signed an official peace treaty, an end to hostilities. And by the end of it, more than 100 people were dead, half of them, roughly half of them being civilians, the other half being military personnel. Hundreds of people were wounded, and over 100,000 people were displaced out of their homes. My fear, and the fear I'm sure of the people of the region is that unless the heart of the issue is resolved, not only will these conflicts continue, but the pattern of escalation will continue as well. And at what point is a line drawn? Where is the cap to this escalation? There's no reason that I see for it to level off other than an aversion to total destruction on the parts of both nations. My point is, instead of 
having an annual war, I'm sure that the people of Tajikistan and of Kyrgyzstan, especially the people that are directly affected by the fighting, would welcome a total restructuring of the agreements that both nations have in place concerning access to natural resources in borders in the region. A complete restructuring and recommitment to a new system designed specifically to avoid an escalation in this armed conflict. There's no reason to not go to the table and figure this out. And I get it. It's a very complex, complicated issue that has a very long history. But surely more progress will be made going forward diplomatically than is being made currently with these increasingly violent armed conflicts. Hopefully some long-lasting resolution can come to pass here pretty soon. That is it for episode one of International War Report. I want to thank you guys for tuning in and listening. Uh, You can read the report, the fact sheet, and find all of the maps and visual aids at internationalwarreport.com. You can look at past issues in the past issues tab. Uh, There are some other features of the site that are still in development. Uh, Follow International War Report on Instagram. On Twitter, you can find us at INTL War Report. On Twitter, that's at INTL War Report. Thank you guys so much for listening. Take care.